0: I think that what we're looking at is, is a critical moment in human evolution and technological evolution. I think we're looking at this really interesting turning point where our physiology is not adapting as fast as technologies are adapting. And we're getting exposed to more data. The data stream is immense. It is huge. We're spending more time on screens. We're changing our lifestyle at such a rapid rate. And the response from those changes looks like higher rates of anxiety. Or as our mutual friend Andrew Andrew Huberman says, autonomic arousal, arousal of the nervous system. And I think that one of the biggest problems that we can work to tackle is whether that's being labeled a disorder or whether it's being looked at as a natural physiological response to overstimulation.
1: Welcome back or welcome to The Off Ball Podcast. My name is Martin Reeder. I'm a 2012 Beach Volleyball Olympian performance coach. But more importantly than my worldly labels, I'm someone who wants to help you level up by having more meaningful, authentic, and profound conversations with performers and athletes and coaches and visionaries and mavericks who are pushing their edges. But it's not about the outcome. It's about what's happening on the inside. It's about their game within the game. This is not about quantity. This is about quality. And if your first instinct to get better at something is to do way more of it, well, I want to challenge that. There's a better way of improving at a skill, and it starts with you getting more clear on your vision, understanding more about yourself, having stronger standards, building your discipline, having better systems in your life to uphold your performance, rather than just simply focusing on the performance itself and today's conversation is more of a deep dive into youth anxiety now before you run off thinking you're not passionate about this or you don't necessarily think this applies to you just know that anxiety is a part of stress management and performance ultimately comes down to stress management how do you manage your environment around you how do you manage pressure David Bidler, who I'm going to be speaking with today, is a subject matter expert. He's a gym owner in New York, he's an ultramarathon athlete, and he's someone who's incredibly educated and passionate about helping youth deal with anxiety, which is a massive issue we're facing in North America. This is not about medicating our way out of this issue, which medication plays a role in it, but breathwork fundamentally should be the first step. And what David is doing is he's going to schools and educating youth and teachers on how to better manage their internal states by understanding more about their physiology, by understanding more of their mechanics, and understanding how breath work is fundamentally their first step to resolving their internal distress. So we're going to get right into this with Dave. He is a firecracker. In fact, we're going to move right into his opening monologue. So thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you. And there's actually an opportunity for you to engage with David by helping fund his research. $100 would help him so much. So if you feel compelled to give, I'll leave the information in the show notes and please feel free to donate to his cause. So without further ado,
0: I present to you, David Bittler. I think we all get involved in issues and causes and problems that we've either been affected by or that we've been close to, right? We have some personal connection to it. And, uh, you know, I think that my own work in this really started when I was like a really young dude who got diagnosed with the anxiety disorder. And at the time I had no background in physiology, um, anatomy, biology, any of this stuff, no idea. But I I knew enough to recognize that my lifestyle was just in shambles. I mean, as a young kid, we were kind of, um, we were all kind of running wild, you know? And we we're sleeping very little. And we were essentially in, in a state, in a physiological state, that should produce higher levels of anxiety and arousal. That's kind of the mechanism that we have built in. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember that the questions never came up. And that was really impactful for me, you know, because I, I, I love good questions about serious problems. And, and I remember in my own experience, I thought, what are not they asking about this? Because I don't know that this is a disorder, I wonder if it isn't a response to a series of external stimuluses, environmental factors, and lifestyle choices. Um, And and I just, you know, I I always remembered having those burning questions as I ultimately figured out ways to, to overcome that in my own life through some of the things we'll get into in the podcast today. And being able to go through that process and that journey of getting sort of a higher level of awareness around physiology, around state, around self-regulation was, you know, it, it was not It was life-changing. It changed my entire life. It changed the things I was able to do in my life, the impact I've been able to, to have and to share with other people. It was, it was a game-changer. And I thought, why isn't a lot of this information that I came through or to in a very circuitous way, why is it so hard to find? You know, why isn't it in curriculums that are engaging, why isn't it in the public narrative, and how do we make that happen in a way that's really sort of creative, um, positive, proactive, engaging, and and, and easy to understand? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, what a great way to start it off. Well, let's dive in then. Why why do you care? And I guess it's it's an easy one to bring this around because people don't care unless they know how much you care. So why do you care so much, David? What's the story behind that?
0: You know, I I think sometimes, you know, uh, it's easy to get involved to the other side of the coin of what I was just saying. It's easy to get involved in issues or causes that you're, you're simply emotionally attached to because of personal experience. But I think if we zoom out and we really work to be a bit more objective as to the largest problems that we could possibly be solving and working on, The mental state and mental health of the youth who are going to guide the world at this point seems to me like objectively one of the biggest problems we could possibly tackle. Whether you have an emotional investment or not, it just seems like a really important sort of future planning thing, right? They're going to take the wheel of an entire society. And the tools that we give them today are going to give them the, the ability to guide the ship, you know, steer the ship. And so that that seems like one of the most important problems that any of us, you know, whether we've been directly affected or not, could be thinking about as we think about building a future that we're really inspired by, and that we're proud to have contributed to, you know, to, to putting to laying the groundwork for. Hmm. Yeah. Man. Agreed. Well, how how are you,
1: or how were you impacted by this? Do you have any personal experiences that have laid the groundwork for you, well, you to really have you know, this passion for it?
0: I think one of the things that happened is, you know, as you know, I I run a gym in Maine called The Distance Project. And we work on strength and conditioning, endurance training, and human performance. And, you know, it was was so counter to the lifestyle that I was living as a younger person. So I got to experience a sort of arc and trajectory that may be a little bit uncommon. I went from like the unhealthiest lifestyle (laughs) that I could possibly envision and understood what that felt like and what the physical and mental ramifications of that were. Mm. And then as I worked to modify and make lifestyle changes, I felt it so you know, uh, intrinsically that this was a really, really, really powerful thing. And as I met other adults and then ultimately uh, you know, young people who hadn't, had, who hadn't been exposed to the same tools, the same resources, the same coaches, the same teachers, and they all had the same desire to feel awesome. I mean, that's kind of like the innate desire, right? Beyond anything else, the thing that probably connects us is we want to feel good, feel connected, do good work. And you could the more that you learn about, you know, anxiety and the physiology of anxiety, the more that you see people almost trapped, they're almost become prisoners of their own physiology. And it's like there are there are keys to those locks. And they're not inaccessible. They're actually innately built into our physiology. And if you can help someone grab the key and unlock that. It's it's the most empowering shared experience, I think. Yeah,
1: agreed. Well, all of these tools are available to us. They are free, which is incredible. And I I also just to tap into that, I think we either we don't know or we forget how incredible we're supposed to feel. Like innately we we're yes. so, we 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 have this incredible availability of, of feeling excellent and being capable and doing things yes. that we are, are so far beyond what our current understanding of ourselves is. And so we limit ourselves and all of a sudden we feel pain or we're sad or our, our back hurts and we become that thing and we become stuck there. So these are ways of transitioning into our you know, personal greatness, which I love what you're talking about. We often forget that we are capable of feeling amazing, right?
0: That is so powerfully well said. And that is at the heart, at the very heart of the work that we're doing. You know, people say, you know, you can't, you can't go out and like change culture. But we mirror each other. We mimic each other. I've, I've worked a lot of different jobs. And before you know it, a week or two in, you start to mirror the lingo. And you start to mirror the attitude. You start to mirror the vibe and the temperature. So another reason the issue becomes important is we're, we're kind of creating the archetype or the climate for the future culture and if it looks like hey it's a rare day that i feel terrible and i mostly feel awesome and ready to you know climb mountains and tackle things great (laughs) but if the (laughs) archetype is wow my back hurts i'm exhausted i'm fatigued i'm anxious i'm depressed i don't think that that's wrong Mm but i don't think that that's a problem that my that my body is urging me to find creative outlets and ways to solve it becomes a norm real fast you know we're really good at adopting norms real fast So I hope that we can try to change those norms. Well, I think it's interesting
1: because as you talk about that, I've had multiple realizations and it's not just Australia um, because that's where I am right now. But as I'm driving, I'm acutely aware of the propaganda that certain products are sharing on their advertising and marketing. And every single thing is essentially saying, you feel tired. So here's a product for that. You feel it's a strong sorry, statement, right? isn't it? Right. So all, all of a sudden, everyone's looking around themselves and saying, oh, yeah, I do feel tired. Oh, yeah, this. And so there's a certain level of acceptance that it's normal to not feel well or to feel unwell or to have a baseline level of be it anxiety or pain or feeling like stuck. So that is almost perpetuated in society right now. And then that it's about an extrinsic, very extrinsic way of solving that via, via pill, via rub, via this, via that. So what we're, let's, let's dive into a little bit more of this work, but we're talking about this intrinsic thing that's available to all of us.
0: So the accessibility right? is, the accessibility itself is incredible to me. You know, one thing I'm always looking at when we work on things is what is the economic accessibility? What is the cultural cross-cultural accessibility to the tool can everybody grab it? Can everybody grasp it? Can everybody take ownership of it? Is it available to everybody innately or is it something that's available to some people? And the universal power of understanding how respiration is sort of a, you know, our, our mutual friend, Brian McKenzie, who has been an incredible mentor, is doing phenomenal and powerful work. He has a great analogy. You know, he's like, breath is the remote control to the brain. And so mm-hmm. it's just a wonderful way to talk about the power of respiration, um, which we'll get really deep into in our conversation, I'm sure, from a, a research level and a, you know, a deep dive, but as we work to make this language accessible to students, that's one of the, the lines that we use a lot, and they, they gravitate towards it immediately. They can get that, that they have more agency and control than maybe they, they've been led to believe or think. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So let's, let's tackle it. Let's dive in. So as, as the school season is starting and, and kids are, are starting to go back and, and sit down all day and be in these learning environments and, and have a certain amount of stress, uh, be it at home or be it at a school that might be impacting their learning or impacting how they feel about themselves and impacting their futures. Like, What are we talking about here? David, what are you looking to achieve with what it is that you're doing? And, and let's describe what that is.
0: Well, you know, it, what we're working to do is we're working to share leading-edge tools to manage stress and manage anxiety and to peak cognitive performance, to peak their performance with the next generation of leaders. And those are the students, right, in, in America's classrooms and classrooms around the world. We, you mentioned earlier in the conversation, you know, how easy it is to look at feeling crappy as a norm. And before you know it, when feeling good, feeling awesome becomes a norm, the divide gets greater and greater. It's huge. Right? You're hanging out with people who also feel awesome and they're doing training and fitness and breath work and all this stuff. And it's so easy to end up removed from a, a, a lot of folks who can't even relate to that. Right? Mm. They can't relate to the language. They can't relate to the concept because they haven't felt it yet. You know, before, before I made some lifestyle changes, I didn't know what awesome felt like. So crappy was the top of the pyramid. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was just less crappy, right? <laughs> and then yeah. you, make, you make some personal you know, progress and you go, oh, wait a minute, I've never felt so good. So it, ultimately what we're working to do is get these, these concepts and these tools out of the small box of hot, top performers, athletes, neuroscientists, people in the, in the technical world, people who are talking about human performance. And the people for whom that concept really hasn't been, you know, no, no one's hit them with it in a way that's connected yet. You know, when we go into schools, we have a really amazing opportunity because we're working with so many schools in very different districts. They're economically different. They're geographically different. They're incredibly different. And when you can see the, um, first off, the level of tools that some students have been presented with already and how absent they are in other districts, that, that impassions me. I think because breath is a universal tool, it should be universally shared and talked about and built into curriculums. It shouldn't be something that you have to take a course on neuroscience, which is certainly not a standard course in, you know, in most high schools Should mm-hmm. be exposed to. You know, so that, there's that, which is the actual accessibility. And then there's the understanding that across cultures and across financial barriers and across all this stuff, The stress response is the stress response. The anxiety response is the anxiety response. And I want to be really, I want to help to guide the conversation in a way that doesn't put one problem over another in terms of importance. and doesn't separate students even more by status or geography, but really connects them in a way that they understand that we have agency over our own physiology and that ability to take control of our internal environment. Determines our perception of our external environment and circumstances, and when people can connect that to their own goals, you've given them this really, really cool tool for goal achievement, goal attainment, and, and self—you know—self-development in, in a real way. That, that's hopefully not flaky, but actually, you know, measurable and tangible. Hmm.
1: Well, speaking about measurable and tangible, I mean, we're we're looking really at personal empowerment here and breaking that that's down. That's the heart, right? And and 100%. before we do that though, before we, we really expand on what you're doing and, and some specific work and really your your goals and how you're going to achieve that, I'd love to define like what are what are we looking at here? What's the issue? Or is this is this about anxiety? Is this about poor stress management? Like what what lies fundamentally at the
0: baseline of I, what you're trying to solve here, David? You know, it's such a great question. And and I think that what we're looking at. Is, is a critical moment in human evolution and technological evolution, right? I think we're looking at this really interesting turning point where our, you know, our, our physiology is not adapting as fast as technologies are adapting. And you know, we're getting exposed to more data. The data stream is immense. It is huge. We're spending more time on screens. We're changing our lifestyle at such a rapid rate. And the response from those changes looks like higher rates of anxiety, or as our mutual friend Andrew Andrew Huberman says, autonomic arousal, arousal of the nervous system. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the biggest problems that we can work to tackle is whether that's being labeled a disorder or whether it's being looked at as a natural physiological response to overstimulation, because those are two very different things. And there are two very different approaches to whether you have a disorder or whether your physiology is functioning perfectly fine, and it's doing what it should do if you expose it to constant chronic overstimulation. Those are two very different paths to solve a problem, right?
1: Absolutely. Well, it's funny you mentioned uh, Dr. Huberman because we had a little chat this morning, and he brought up something that I I really appreciated, that everyone has a different baseline level of how to deal with stress. Stress. So every single person has it lives a little bit closer to anxiety or lives a little bit closer to a fear response than, than, than other people. So something that you've shared and I, I really love it is, you know, the first intervention for, let's say depression or anxiety or something along those lines shouldn't be medication. You're lobbying that it should be a CO2 tolerance test or it should be an understanding of how they breathe. You know, how, how does breath, let's just say play into the fundamental, stress response for humans and why aren't we
0: looking at it man right well you know I, I you know as you brought up andrew's work i have to shout him out because i think he's doing some of the most powerful and incredible work in the world right now it's it, um, i couldn't be more inspired by what's happening at huberman labs and we got a chance to visit there about two years ago and with all of the students we share a couple of the pieces of the puzzle that we got from our trip there and the one piece that we use every single time and I can't tell you how much of a universally positive response it's gotten, is we take a chart, you know, visualize a big whiteboard. On the top, it says states. And on one end of the spectrum, we have panic. Next to that, down the line, we have awake but alert. Mm -hmm. Next to that, we have awake but calm. We move down the line to sleepy, asleep, coma, dead. When you, can, when you can get a group of students to say, look, we recognize those states, right? We're not talking about emotions. We're not talking about something that we can't agree upon. We can kind of see that line. We've all been panicked. We've all been asleep. We understand that trajectory. And you can start to ask them, well, look, like what tools do you have when you're in a state of awake and alert, but it's 2.15 in the morning and you're like on Instagram? What are the tools to get to sleep? How do you drive that? How do you drive that road? What do you do when it's two p.m. and you're half asleep, and you have to get to a football game? You have to get to a. You have a test to take. You have a job interview. What are the tools that you have? Because the commonality. Actually, let me preface this with an important piece of our seminar, and then I'll circle back if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. When, when we start the seminars with students, which we're doing all throughout Maine and Boston and throughout the National Ambassador Program now, we we start them with a short visualization exercise, and. One thing that we learned from the exercise is that when you ask a bunch of high school students today to lay down for 90 seconds, the resistance is zero. It is zero, man. They go, Oop. they don't even question <laughs> why they're on their backs. They're like, thank you. Like, <laughs> so to, to the point of overstimulation, they don't have, they have no pushback on this. They're on their back and I tell them, look, we're going to take 90 seconds. And all that I want you to do is visualize the most happy, fulfilled, engaged, like rock star version of your life that you get. Like dream it up, right? Dream the thing that you want to live and the thing that you want to be. And you don't have to report it back to anyone. You don't have to share it. This is not a test. It's just an exercise. Give them 90 seconds to do that. And then when they all sit up, we remind them that all of this stuff, all this talk about breath, physiology, self-regulation, state control, is about giving them tools to get there. Right? there's going to be barriers and barricades. There's going to be things that they can't see. And what we share with them to circle back is that the people who are operating at the height of their field and their craft, the people who are top performers, I ask the students, you know, what, what tool do you think they all have in common? What's the commonality, right? You look at your favorite, favorite rapper, right? Your favorite, uh, your, your, you know, the athletes you admire, the, the authors, the musicians, everybody, what are the tools that you think that they have in common? And a lot of students will kind of answer because we've been through it, but if they haven't, I'll say, you know, it's the ability to manage their internal state regardless of the storm, right? Regardless of the external circumstances. Mm -hmm. They can take control of themselves regardless of what's happening and they can rock and they can roll. And if we can help the students understand this in a way that connects it to their goals and gives them tools to rock and roll in life, that's the goal of the seminar series. And that's what we're trying to get out of, the exchange of being in all these schools and, and really just talking with kids about anxiety and what it means in today's world.
1: It's so good. And it's something that I really worked on myself is if you go into mm-hmm. a group of students, athletes, you name it, like, I'm just going to focus on youth here. But if you tell them that they have to do something oh and, man. and, and, and you don't put them at the center of the story and you don't give right. them this, this reason that connects with their personal why and gives them space to explore, you know, you're really just telling them the opposite because that's how they're going to respond. Right. So you're not creating space for them.
0: And you know, I think the way that we've talked about anxiety um, in the past decade is so stigmatized and it is so surface level that they don't know what environment they're walking into. Right. They don't know if they're being accused of having anxiety you know, they don't know if they're being admonished in some way. They don't know what this is, this seminar, right? Because we connect with the schools and they bring us into these classrooms. The level of prefacing is going to be different in every single scenario. So what the students think that is even happening after lunch or whenever we hold the seminar is going to be a little bit different. And the first step is trust. The first step is connection. The mm-hmm. first step is to let them know that what's happening is we've happened to come by through a really circuitous journey, we've come across some tools that people are using who are operating at the height of their craft. And they're innate and they're physiological and they're accessible to you. And they level the playing field in today's environment, competitively or otherwise, personally. Mm -hmm. And when we can make that connection and they realize that they have more tools at their disposal than they thought that they did. And that, and you know, another thing to realize that a lot of these kids have been diagnosed with anxiety. I mean, that's the epidemic that we're seeing is we're getting a diagnosis of anxiety disorder. And, what, and what's, that that what's really the ground?
1: Dramatic. And that, let's, let's dive into that one because I think that's really, really important. Like, what, what's the grounds for that? Like that, The people are yeah. being diagnosed with anxiety. What, what let, are the, what's the person share. looking at? Go for
0: it. Yeah, let, let, let me share, because at the heart of what we're working to change is that process. Um, to answer your, your question more directly from the beginning of the podcast, I'll share a, an experience. I was working with a group of maybe 30 high school students last year. And we were talking about anxiety. And I said, hey, you know, uh, we we're, were just talking about it. And a student raised her hand. And she said, you know, I, had, I got diagnosed with anxiety on Monday. And I want to die. And it was just a group of 30 people. There are healthcare professionals. There are teachers in the room. And I understand the need to not overreact to that on the spot and put the person in a position that felt like they'd been singled out. But it mm. seemed about as common a statement as anyone could make and no one ever brought it up again. I talked to you know everyone afterwards. And it, that's a really powerful statement. I got diagnosed with anxiety. So we have a natural physiological response, right? I get hungry. I get sleepy. I get anxious. I get amped. I get all these different things because I'm exposed to different stimulus. I have different tools to manage the stimulus and I'll end up in very different states of arousal every single day, right? But you got diagnosed with anxiety disorder, which should, I suppose, mean that your physiology is abnormal, right? That, that you're experiencing high levels of anxiety is in itself a disorder. So back to your question, by what criteria? What are we measuring here? Are we measuring a self-report of someone saying, I feel anxious often? Well, That's probably what modern society does right now from a technical and environmental level. We have positional faults that close airways so we can't get air into our bodies. We have a consistently reduced CO2 tolerance. So we're breathing rapidly. We're staring at tiny screens almost 24-7 that's taking in not only a barrage of data, but a flood of social approval or disapproval. Mm -hmm. And we have the stresses of... In this particular instance, all of the specific pressure is specific to that person in their life. And if that person feeling like they're in a state of high arousal or anxiety is a disorder, I think we really need to come up with a better medical definition of whether physiology is going right or whether physiology is going wrong, because that should ultimately determine how we approach that problem. And if Mm -hmm. a pharmacological solution to a natural physiological response is the norm, that's how you end up with this many kids on benzodiazepines and anti-anxiety medications. Yeah. Yeah, super.
1: It's super heavy. Like we're not going to medicate our way out of this this situation. That's that's if, if that is is really what the end game is here, well that it's it's a massive problem for society. So our our goal here is not to shun that by any way is to look at this from a different angle how can we be a little bit more productive how can we create more space for the people who are experiencing these issues how can we give 100 the 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 tools 100 allow them to excel more in their environments and it's something that always comes up for me is like our environments have evolved more rapidly than we have and all of a sudden we find ourselves in these environments that are fast paced. We need social approval. We're online, we're offline. We have our families. We have all of these people that we need to appease. There's just a lot going on. And, and then we're also mimicking animals, right? As human beings, we enter, you, you nailed it. Let's say, you well, we talked about a, that
0: quite a bit, right? How, how totally. actually,
1: yeah. How we so modeled you, and mimic environment. That's it. You, you, you mimic that. Well, what if you're mimicking someone else's stress? And you take that, that off without
0: even knowing it. I, th- I mean, think about, the, think about how that spins you know, uh, the dial a little bit in terms of how we can look at accountability because I think that one of the, the most important parts of this conversation is, is personal accountability and how we model and who we are to the people around us because I, I could, to go back to working you know different jobs, you can tell pretty much from the first day of a new job what the climate is from a stress perspective. Right. And whether anxiety and stress is just whether it's a ferocious environment and that will consume you. So when, when I go into a lot of these schools, um, it's, it's unique because, you know, I work at the gym that we run and there's a certain vibe there and it's a pretty, you know, we, we, we do throw down at night and throw on some, you know, some music, we, we, we go pretty hard, but for the most part, the environment is, is calming. And then as I go into these different schools, the frenetic pace of the entire environment has become a norm for everybody in it. But I'm an outsider to a degree. So when you walk in and shrill bells are ringing to signal a cascade of students who are crowding the hallways, trying to get by each other to get to a time-sensitive location in a crowded pathway, when you just zoom out, and say, well, you know, what, what is that supposed to do? What is the natural response to a lot of this stuff? And as I always said to the students, I'm not suggesting that we become fragile, right? And that we need to hang out in lily pad, on lily pads in, you know, rock gardens all day long. That's not at all the case. Life's going to go faster. It's going to get frenetic. It's going to get more noisy, Maybe one of the biggest misconceptions is that the future somehow levels out and gets mellower, but it doesn't, right? It only gets louder and noisier and faster. So what we really want the kids to understand is, look, you can't control that external environment. It's going to get wild, but you can control yourself in a very real way, not in a self, not in like a motivational way. Like, you know, you're, you know, you're in control of your life but you can literally control your physiology and your response. And then if we start to look at what that looks like, it looks like heart rate, it looks like skin temperature, it looks like pupil dilation, it looks like respiration rate. It looks like all the things that your body's doing because it's interpreting stimulus and it's taking it in and it's responding for the most part exactly how it's supposed to. And then you have Mm -hmm. the rare cases where it isn't. So our goal is to have those baseline assessments to determine the following. Is the problem we're dealing with predominantly psychological or predominantly physiological? Because we cannot continually approach physiological problems with psychological solutions or we get exactly what we have.
1: Hmm, fascinating. What What would be an example of that if you have one?
0: Uh, I'd give an example. Like One of our, our ultimate goals is to have something like a basic CO2 tolerance test be a step one in this process of evaluation. Right now, if a student goes to um, a counselor and they say, you know, I'm feeling anxious or I have the anxiety, and we're working with teachers who are telling us that this is happening at age six, seven, eight now, multiple times a day. I mean, they're like, we've never seen such a drastic shift in the amount of kids sitting in hallways waiting to talk to a counselor to say, I have the anxiety. Wow. But the approach to it is sort of the Wild West right now. A counselor may have a meditation practice that they share. They may have a mindfulness practice. They may have a particular set of, of beliefs or tools. But there just isn't a streamlined approach. Now, not to compare the two exactly, but if you came into an a, um, athletic trainer and you said, hey, I, I tore my ACL, right, there'd be a standardized approach. We've seen the problem before. So we have a series of things that you would essentially do. You wouldn't start from ground zero, right? So when we talk about the anxiety thing, not to compare the two in any way. But to talk about having protocols, I would want to know if the student was breathing 30 breaths per minute, or if they were breathing eight, because that would give me a lot of information as to whether physiologically they're in a state of hyperventilation. And if they are, everything that they run into that day, from the text message that they get from a friend, to the email, to the Instagram post, it will be run through the perceptive lens of a very high anxiety and autonomic arousal. That's what that does. That's what chronic hyperventilation results in. Mm-hmm. But if they weren't and they were breathing normally and they were breathing easily and they were breathing in a way that showed that they weren't struggling to get oxygen into their system, which is probably the scariest feeling for any human, even when it's subtle. Then we'd start to ask other questions. Well, how, we'd figure out, were they exhausted? Were they? Are they sleeping two hours a night? Because that'll do it. And then what is their, what, what is their? their? what are the other lifestyle factors? And the, the goal is if we can check those boxes, no, they're actually breathing perfectly. There's no breathing dysfunction. There's no measurable, tangible breathing dysfunction. And we don't have these other markers or red flags present. Then that's a really good time to start to look at the psychology of the anxiety and try to figure out what's going on at home and what's going on at school and what's going on in their friend circle and what's going on in their life. But if those are the first questions, you've assumed a psychological issue, without checking for an obvious physiological disruption. And that's what we want to change. Well,
1: that explains why you're called physiology first.
0: <laughs> yeah. And not and not <laughs> and not physiology only. You know, we, we want yeah. psychology is 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 this incredibly complex part of the human animal. And you can study it from every angle and go as deep as you can go into any category or subject, right? And you can learn so much about behavior. And it's it's an incredible field. Yeah. All that but we it, want to do is make sure that we're built that we're checking the first box before we move to the second box in some order that allows us to rule out potential physiological causes of this thing that we're calling generalized anxiety.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And just to break that one down, because we're using some terms that might mm-hmm. not be in in kind of the regular day vernacular of, of people, like what we're talking about here is really there's a stimulus and then there's a sp- there's potentially a space in between that stimulus and then the response that you take, or, or potentially reaction. And inside of that is choice, is self awareness. And so the, the stimulus that happens to somebody in an environment, if you are in an elevated state, so like for instance, imagine a vehicle is sitting there idling. And if it's idling regularly, it's just purring along nicely. But if that vehicle is sitting there, and, and imagine there's a, a rock, pressed on the gas pedal and the engine is revving super high the rest of that story of stimulus choice response is different
0: as a result
1: of just what's happening within the person from a physiological standpoint so i just wanted to paint that picture because
0: it's a wonder it's a wonderful picture and the actual stimulus response um you know diagram or chart that our, our mutual friends at power speed endurance and the art of breath use we have mm-hmm. pull, pulled into seminars before and we've gotten a phenomenal response you know because it, it, it's such a wonderfully simplistic visual and i think that as we take a conversation that we cater to every school you know when we're talking to students we we've all you know i i, I want to make sure that we're using the language that hits in every single individualized environment so maybe we talk about it differently um, to kids who are, do, who are interested in VR and technology to, or to, uh, than we would to those who've never been exposed to that. Maybe, maybe we, we use different frames and stories because we learn through them so deeply. But that chart that you're mentioning, the stimulus, response, and choice, that's so universal. And when you see it, you can conceptualize all the moments in the day that something came at you like 100 miles an hour from the left and that you had a moment to choose. And then you, you responded and that that can be this key to agency, this key to personal, you know, personal success and, and, to, and to feeling your most awesome, which we're constantly talking to the kids about. is like, these are tools to feel awesome and rock the world. You know, that, yeah. if, I could, if I could sum up the seminar, right? And we, we were getting out of the weeds of physiology and respiration. These are tools to feel awesome and rock the world and to, to be really happy while you're doing it and, and to get to those places that are important to you over the obstacles, over the barriers with one of the most powerful tools that we have, which is the control of something as simple as respiration, which drives so many of the changes that you and I are, you know, you and I are talking about.
1: Totally. Well, we're flying at a pretty high altitude, so let's zoom it back in. Let's, let's, let's piggyback off of the example that you gave of that 90 second, have the youth Mm -hmm. on their backs, take them through that exercise where do you go from there within your seminar? What, what are you um, trying to achieve? And, and maybe what's the progression that you take the participants through?
0: I'm so glad during that, your we, that we get to share that. I'm really glad that we get to share that more. And that's, um, that's a cool opportunity because, you know, we also really want, if anybody takes, I'll share the progression. If anybody has ways that they can utilize it, utilize it, you know, organize events and go speak at, you know, to your school team or your kid's class, you know? So we start off with that visualization to show them that this is about them getting to that vision and that place that's important to them. And from there, we basically go into the science of stress management. You know, so one of the, one of the most important parts of this for us after making a real connection and building that trust with them is kind of talking to them about the physiology of peak performance and relating it to the people that they admire, right? making those connections. Who, who rocks the world in your eyes? And I ask them and I wait for the answer. It's Jay-Z. You know, it's LeBron James. It's okay, awesome, great. Who, you know, who's, who's really been a mentor to you? Who are people that you, you're inspired by? And we, go, we circle back to that idea that I brought up earlier, which is what do you think the common tool among them is among all of them in different fields from different places that allowed them to rock the world and reach their goals. And we, t- we tie in then that this idea of state management or the ability to control internal state is probably the one tool that they share, right? They've, they've gone through craziness to get to be Jay-Z or LeBron James or whoever. And these are the tools that they use. And we, we're, we get a chance to share them because we found them in this really crazy journey. And we're really excited to see which ones stick, which ones you guys care about, which ones have value for you and which ones give you, you know, more control over, how you, what, over your stress, anxiety and uh, performance in sport, in school and life. From there, we kind of talk about the science of state management. So like, what are we talking about? Are we talking about an old conversation or a new one? Did we learn new things recently about stress and anxiety? And we love to put up a chart from our visit uh, to Huberman Labs to circle back to Andrew Huberman and show what's happening in his VR lab out there where they're doing incredible work. And the kids generally get kind of a, a kick out of that because what you're doing in the VR lab is you're being exposed to these different fears. So they see videos of me um, and our other coach and my partner in crime, uh, Lex Clark, who came with me out to Stanford, is doing amazing work herself. And they get to see us, you know, walking over tight ropes and swimming with great white VR sharks. And usually they're like, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, this is interesting because you're, you're bringing something new to the table, which is the latest science on the stress response. Mm-hmm. And it's not very readily available. So usually at that point, they start to kind of engage with, oh, this might be something kind of cool. This might be something a little different. It might not just be us coming in and saying, take a deep breath and relax, because that'd be the most patronizing um, <laughs> way to possibly deal with their stress, right? Hey, we just came in to say, chill out, guys. You know, <laughs> take it easy. Yeah. So once they understand that we're talking about the science of stress and what we've more recently learned about this, we ask them, we show them that chart that we talked about from panic all the way down to, you know, dead, that whole state chart. And we really dive in with them. What tools do you have to get from A to B? Who here has been awake at two in the morning and wanting to get to sleep? And we ask them. And the, and the answers that we get when we ask, well, what tools do you have? are pretty forthright. I take my medication. You know, um, I go on social media to, to, until I pass out. And it's like, okay, great. They're giving, they're, they have some tools. They have a strategy. How do we build optimal strategies? What if it's two o'clock in the afternoon you have a big test? Well, I drink, you know, a, a venti, Uh, Frappuccino, and I add more stimulation to the system. Oh, cool. Maybe that ends up circling back at 2 o'clock in the morning, right? So you have a strategy. Is it an optimal strategy? Or do we accidentally build a cycle, right, of stimulation and being overstimulated, right? (laughs) It's kind of the cycle that that builds into. Yeah. At that point, we take them through a really simple breathing exercise because we show them that if we look at this line of state, and we remind them that, you know, hey, we all change our state every day. Why do we do anything? Why do I have coffee? Why do I go for a run? Why do I do, you know, a yoga practice? Why do I take a nap? We're constantly trying to engage with feeling how we want to feel in a moment, right? And they can usually relate. Ask them, what are other things to do to change how you feel? Like, give me some cool ideas. That's why I play sport. That's why I, you know, I, 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 I'm a gamer, whatever the thing might be. And then we're like, cool, well, one of the coolest tools that came out of a lot of the latest science of stress management is how breath fits into the picture. And we make a big circle and we show them like, you know, we understand that if something stressful happened, it would change our breathing. And we come up with a bunch of zany examples if some, you know, safe ones, if something crazy happened and how would our breathing be changed? And then we talk about the opposite side of the curve, the bidirectional nature of this. What happens when our breathing changes and that changes our state? And are we aware of it when it happens? So we take them through a basic, simple breathing exercise and we ask them, how did this move you on this chart? Do you feel more awake and alert? Do you feel more sleepy? Is anybody panicked? No one's dead? You know, <laughs> usually they, <laughs> you know, like, and we get, we get some answers, but the answer is always, yeah. Oh, wow. That's cool. That changed how I felt. Well, cool. That took two minutes. And cool. That was just you using your nose. And cool. No one even had to see you do that. You were just sitting at a desk quietly in the middle of a day. So if you want to feel the way that that just made you feel, hey, great, put that tool in your pocket. And that's Love where then that. because you felt something becomes a, a kind of a turning point in the seminar. Hmm. So good. i so, you, go? you through the rest if you want. Yeah, if you I, want I do. It. I
1: do. I think what, what's really important here for me is that you're connecting to the feeling. Like you're, you're coaching coaching them through the human animal. You're not just going in there much. Like you said, the the patronizing, you're going in there to just teach them how to breathe and relax. No, no, no. You're connecting them to feeling and everyone is feeling differently. Everyone feels differently in all kinds of different situations. Everyone's had their own lives. They're coming into these learning environments with based on their own, you know, impact from environments that everyone has to deal with, be at home, be at whatever. And you're connecting them to feeling themselves and trusting yes. that feeling and learning how to take, not I don't want to say take control because that's, it's still too easy is to, to feel mm-hmm. their way through it. There's a certain level of trusting yourself and not thinking that yeah. you're wrong that I really appreciate. Yes. So I just, I just want to yes. acknowledge that.
0: I love you, that Martin. I love, you know, intuition, right? It's this thing that we're getting yeah. detached from and it's so yeah. powerful. It tells us so much
1: and I, I can't even imagine what a 10 11 12 13 year old kid mm-hmm. is like when they're just told by their parents or by society what their life's going to look like and you can you can play when you're 60 after you've retired it's like well I'm 13 right. so you know i've that's 47 years that i can look forward to shoveling whatever that is so that I can get to a point at 60 where I can play. Like, what, what do I have to look forward to there? So
0: it, well, I mean, it's, let's so, think about that for a second, because that, that's deep territory, right? Like one thing that we do with the seminars from the get, you know, we, like you said, we make them feel it, internally, but also the seminars are lit, dude. Like my job <laughs> in this is to make it one of the most fun parts of the day. And I don't mean like zany theater. I just mean, I'm, I, If you don't feel awesome and seem like you feel awesome, you cannot be a, I don't know, a peddler of like feeling awesome, right? You can't walk into the room half dead and be like, look, these are tools to make you feel amazing. Generally, it should work, right? You should kind of be modeling that in your overall energy. So when it comes in it, the seminar feels different. I'm like, "If if it doesn't feel different, it won't be different. If it feels like a bio class, it is a bio class. And they just came from bio class. You know what I mean? So... Oh, I feel it's you. The, oh, yeah. Like the feeling in the room should be exciting. Like, this is some new stuff, guys. This is some new stuff that we're learning about the human animal and how we work. And it's only important because it gets us to accomplish things that we care about. So this is going to be, we're going to jam today. And that's the vibe of the seminar. And people get yeah. up and they, and they immediately, they understand it's going to be a little bit different. And then, as you said, we, we tune them into themselves. Because if we're going to blame things like social media, on youth anxiety. We're gonna say, well, this is a social media issue. To your point, I think there's probably something more dangerous in saying things like, thank God it's Friday, um, live in the dream, <laughs> same crap, different day, as a working model and narrative for life. Mm-hmm. Because that's not inherently really inspiring. So if you don't have people that are feeling really inspired, there is more to it than the physiology, right? There's the entire culture in the entire cultural narrative about whether life is amazing or whether it's it kind of crappy, you know? So to your point, I think that's something that's really important. Well, I'm going to go on a, a quick tangent because it's a,
1: a yeah. passion point is one of those statements that we're all just using to represent the struggle of life is, is the grind. And I absolutely yeah. despise, <clears throat> I despise yeah. the term, the grind. And people you. are are using it and, and there's no quality. There's no feeling in the grind or, or there no. is actually an assumption that you should feel like shit. You should yes, feel like, like you're a victim of your, your daily circumstances and you have no choice. You just need to go through this work and you have to play a game where the only game is doing more. And then all of a sudden, if you're competing at a game of doing more than other people, then you forfeit your life. You forfeit the quality and the enjoyment, your personal expression, your creativity, all that kind of stuff. So, this whole grind of the only way that you're going to make it is by doing more. The, what we're talking about, we're kind of reinventing the game. Not not to say you and I are doing
0: that together, but yes, we're looking but the at conversation the conversation that's happening. Yes, is, it makes it a ride, not a grind. And totally. a wild ride and a really thrilling ride, right? So, so
1: we're now giving people a steering wheel and that steering wheel is connected to the insides of themselves. It's, it's connected to creating their own story and looking at it from a different angle. So rather than playing the game that everybody else is playing, well, let's, let's all start to play a different game, which is trusting ourselves and expressing 100%. ourselves and going down that pathway. So to bring it back to feeling,
0: I love that. Let's, I love let's, that. And go for it. And you it. know, to, to, to circle back to, to this idea of, of working to apply a level of objectivity Right, to some of the stuff that we're working on, but not to become automatic in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I often say that you know, we're hanging out with students. And I'm like, look, like if you want to really just zoom out objectively, life is kind of the craziest and most amazing gift in the world. It's like a 400 trillion in one shot. Like It's the rarest thing that you could ever have. And objectively, that's a wildly cool opportunity. So if we don't see it that way, objectively, probably there's something going on either physiologically, psychologically, culturally, something that makes us feel like this really amazing experience sucks. And if we don't think that that's the norm, and we understand that that's probably objectively a little bit weird to think that this whole shot that you get to exist on this planet and make an impact and feel things and connect with other humans is a grind, then we accept it as a grind, right? But if we think, wait a minute, this is pretty cool. I don't don't know if it should feel like such a damn grind. I wonder if then those I wonder ifs become the curious questions that open these students up to ask better questions about how they, about their potential to feel awesome and do awesome things. Yeah. Yeah. So good. And and the conversation
1: here isn't about ease is not just about happiness and enjoyment and sipping pina coladas on beaches. Like we do that for a week and you realize, oh, there's a lot more to life than sipping pina coladas on beaches. So I think I, an important caveat here is that we have to do work, we have to do hard work, yes. we have to challenge ourselves, air quote, stress, we have to go through these experiences, but if you feel like you're at the center of your own story and it's connected yes. to something that lights you up and that you're passionate about and you've managed to let go of other people judging you and viewing and you're just doing your thing, there's a lot of space there for someone to thrive and to build a, a, a meaning, meaningful
0: life and existence, right? there's an amazing amount of space. And, and, you know, talking, we talked earlier about Andrew Huberman, he, he referenced a study, um, someplace that he was speaking around what, if you could, if, if you could stimulate any brain region, if you can get any experience and repeat it, what would be the thing that you stimulated the most? And it's a fascinating study and you I'll have to actually dig it up and send it to you. But what it was, was it wasn't, you know, um, it wasn't uh, the, the, on, the, on the relaxed end of the spectrum at all. It was on the highest stressed part of the spectrum. It's that feeling of trying to solve a really important, difficult problem. We thrive on that. We thrive on challenge. That's how we evolved. We didn't evolve by sipping pina coladas on the beach, you know? And I think the most misleading thing we can do with these students is, is try to lead them to a path that puts them there for them to have the ultimate circle back realization of, wait a minute, this isn't what I thought it was. Mm-hmm. I don't feel yeah. fulfilled. I feel, I feel depressed. I feel empty. I don't feel like I'm in a growth environment. So the yeah. idea of reframing stress, which is something that our friends at power speed endurance are brilliant at reframing stress. I, I want stress cause I want to grow. And we try to share that through the seminar that those are the opportunities for you to figure out why you're here. And that's really, that becomes really exciting as you get deeper into the journey yeah that's that's a big conversation so let's go back into oh, yeah. you're
1: you're inside the school you've now connected them to the feeling school. you've inspired them you're, you're you're being awesome in person hopefully they're sitting on the edges of their seats listening well, I, at I, this I, at this point now that they're feeling you know what comes next
0: and and you know to to touch on that and hopefully they're feeling awesome because hopefully we've asked authentic questions and really listened Mm-hmm. You know, hopefully we, we made that connection where, look, we're just sitting on the ground. We, I'm not in a, we're not in a rush. We're ready to break into the, you know what I mean? Like, hopefully they feel empowered and that they're talking about things that maybe they haven't talked about in a while. You know, so hopefully there's a mutual feeling of, okay, this is, getting, this is cool. So mm-hmm. once we've taken them through a simple breathing exercise to show them how that can shift their state, then we start to talk about. Um, kind of the next stage of our own journey, which was coming across the work of Dr. Jose Herrero. Um, he's a collaborator of ours down in Brooklyn and coming across the coolest cutting edge research on breath and the brain. And we put up the research, you've got the brain. And what he's doing is phenomenal because he's working in epileptic neurosurgery. So while every other field of neuroscience has to rely on imaging, like fMRI and EEG, they have electrodes directly on the human brain. So what you're getting is, is the clearest insight into the, into the analogy of breath being the remote control. I tell the students, I'm like, so we're taking people through breathing exercises and we're literally watching their brain. We're watching parts of their brain light up. The parts that are responsible for attention, for memory, for fear, for threat detection, all because of the mechanics, the volume, and the rate of their breathing. And I'm like, and that's uh-huh. happening to every one of you right now. And it's happening to me right now. And it's happening to everyone in the school right now. Right. So you want to talk about a remote control. I'm like, have you ever felt like the day was going way too fast? Maybe you're hitting fast forward. Maybe you're sitting on the remote. I always say to them, you know, like maybe that's what's up. Is it all going too slow? We get a chance to look through some of the science with them and really quickly, we don't stay on it. We don't make sure it doesn't become dull, but we just show them the brain and the science and, the way that breathing actually affects the brain. And then we have them go through some mechanical tests. We're like, so if breathing affects our memory, I ask them like, so what is the whole deal here in school? What are you trying to like do? It's like, well, we have tests and stuff. I'm like, cool. I'm like, you're trying to like ace them, do well at them? Yeah, okay, cool. What would that take? Attention and memory, right? That's kind of like the critical attributes for this whole school thing. You'd be able to pay attention to a thing and remember it so that you could ultimately know it. when the time came to test that knowledge, right? And they're like, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, cool. So attention and memory and breath are related. Feeling anxious and scared all day is the disadvantage. That just feels bad. So what determines, what causes us to breathe? What drives respiration to begin with? Why are we taking the next breath right now? What does the process look like? Because I'm going to bet that you're all breathing a little differently and that I'm breathing a little differently. And we understand that the volume rate and mechanics of this are going to affect not only our, so, you know, our, our physiological state and our actual brain activity. So this is kind of a big deal to maybe decode, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, let's, let's talk about it, you know? So at that point we have them lay down and we do a basic test on whether they're breathing diaphragmatically or not. And it's a very basic test. I'd love to go deeper, but the time doesn't often allow. What happens when we don't use our diaphragm as the primary breathing muscle? How does that change our, our neural activity, how does that change our relationship to stress and anxiety? Just from that one mechanical fault that has nothing to do with psychology, it has everything to do with basic anatomy and biomechanics. Mm-hmm. And once they all sit up and realize that the room's almost split at that point from a test of whether they're breathing predominantly with their chest or predominantly with the diaphragm. And I think what ends up happening, because it's not, I think a lot of, students do get introduced to the idea of belly breathing if they've been introduced to practices like yoga or other practices that introduce breath. So whether they're really breathing diaphragmatically or simply breathing into the belly is something we're going to be doing future research on with Jose in New York, where we can actually use electrodes. It's going to be, it's going to be a pretty incredible experiment. But in the school seminar, we just show them that the mechanics matter, right? The way that you're breathing mechanically is going to determine the rate and the volume, and that's going to determine how your brain and body respond. And that's not something that—that's you can control, but you're doing it all day anyway. You're sending those messages. You're hitting the remote. Are you hitting the right button? Hmm. Right?
1: So that usually good.
0: gives them a little bit of buy-in. And then we go deeper into the actual physiology of it. We do a CO2 tolerance test, and they understand you would understand immediately if your score was 10 seconds and somebody's was 50, that there was a difference physiologically. hmm so we make sure not to go so deep diving into neurophysiology that you, you get the, because as soon as we get the glazed over look, we go boom, right back into action, right? Like right back into story. <laughs> we go as far as we can, and then we go right back into action. But we do show them that like, okay, I'm like, how, why don't we do a test? I'm like, i put a 30 second clock on. And I just want you to time how many breaths you take in 30 seconds. And inhale and exhale is one breath. And then who wants to shout out some numbers only if you're comfortable? Somebody says, hey, I I took five breaths, which would double out to 10. Somebody else, 17. It's like, wow, okay, that's a really big difference in what's happening in your brain and body. I don't say that, but that's the takeaway, right? Mm -hmm. Is that there's just the same amount of oxygen in the room. We're not running out. There wasn't more on your side. But you're breathing almost 30 times per minute and you're breathing 10. Well, what if we start to look at heart rate now? What if we start to look at skin temperature? What if we could look at all of the natural responses of the body? What would we see? We, we posit that we would see upregulated arousal in that person breathing 30 breaths per minute, and that when they get the email from the teacher that something you know, didn't get approved or they get a bad grade or something goes down, their, their baseline is in a higher level of arousal and anxiety just physiologically. And now they have to respond to all, that, all of that actual external Challenge, mm-hmm. well, they're probably going to respond in a higher state of anxiety because they were in one to begin with. The baseline was higher. And if we can get them to understand that, then we talk to them about the critical pieces of our puzzle, which are breath awareness, breath training. I'm sorry, breath awareness, breath control, breath training, and breath practice. Mm-hmm. And we really try to leave them with a tangible, usable system for becoming aware of their breathing, for taking control of their breathing, and for practicing it like any adaptation that they'd want to make in sport or school or anywhere else in life. That's so great. And, and so, is a time for Q and A with them. We do lots of time for Q and A. I was just about to ask, it sounds super
1: interactive, but is there a moment in time where you just give them all the space to ask questions? All the space.
0: At, at the end, we just kick it. We all kind of just sit down and we just ask, Hey, how can we clamor, How do we make these tools valuable? How do we, um, How do we have a better conversation on using some of these simple ideas? And what are the ideas? I always circle back because we covered a lot at that point. The ideas are breath awareness. Do I know if I'm hyperventilating or mouth breathing all day? The ideas are breath control. What if I have a big test or a job interview? What might I want to do to take control of my actual anxiety state, my state of anxiety, my levels of anxiety? What is breath training? What are simple things you can do every day? What does it mean to have a breath practice? What is, is it, is it in a really busy, stressed out world? Is it a competitive advantage or a personal advantage to be able to turn things off for three minutes and sit with yourself mm-hmm. and turn the noise down so that when you come back on, you're not exhausted. You're ready to, you're ready to roll. Yeah. That's so great. Well,
1: incredibly admirable pursuit. Uh, you're bringing some, very important and timely information to to students to to young people and i, I love this conversation because this is about the human being i mean we're, we forget that we're just a bunch of monkeys walking around in suits right? we're end a of the bunch day. of monkeys
0: you know we're very very confused you know we're trying to figure it all out you know and when somebody seems like they might have an answer or a tool it's like okay let's try that out that's how we've always evolved, you know? And I, I think this is one of the first stages where we get to kind of evolve on purpose. I mean, how cool is that? One thing I can't say enough is if we talk about anxiety or mental health as if it's a stigmatized and negative conversation, we're going in the in, in incredibly um, in the wrong direction. We're moving incredibly fast in the wrong direction. What is more exciting than mental health? When is health a negative? When does health become synonymous with the word illness, right? So if I said we were doing a presentation on mental health, I couldn't see a lot of students getting excited because they would think it was in fact a conversation on mental illness, right? Mm -hmm. I I haven't heard anyone talk about mental health in years. What would that look like? Oh, wow, that person was, you know, they were sharp. They were paying attention. They they were engaged. They could remember things. We're talking about cognitive function, right? Right. They had emotional state control. They didn't like, you know, yell at me. Uh, They had all of these skills that are cognitive. And that's not a conversation on illness. That's a conversation on self-adaptation. That's a conversation on evolution. It's a conversation on personal growth in a really like measurable way. And it's a conversation on looking at our mental health as something that we're trying to improve upon. I Mm -hmm. always say at the gym, you know, we didn't build, we have a gym. People come in not to maintain homeostasis. They don't come in to look and feel and perform the same. They come in to upgrade that. They want it to be better. They want to be faster or stronger. That's fitness. They're training. If we can get these students thinking about their mental fitness as something that they're always working on, that's not a stigmatized conversation. That's actually like the conversation about becoming who you want to be. Yeah. And even from the other side
1: something that i'm i've discovered throughout my career and i'm doing my best to talk about right now is you know performance doesn't start where health ends if we were to flip yes. that to you know all of a sudden it's mental illness versus mental health well then right mental, the performance side well we don't need to sacrifice our health absolutely but many often do to to live on the higher end of that spectrum and then all of a sudden absolutely. we we we're, we're now seeing a lot of high-performance athletes coming up with stories of how they're feeling and what's going on. And, you know, the, the NBA is having a conversation, DeMar DeRozan, Kevin Love. Mm-hmm. Yep, they're yep. starting to, to bring that to a higher level of consciousness in the NBA. But the the mental health and mental illness, I mean, it goes on both sides. And really, we want to empower people to live a life where they feel
0: good. That that is That is so... To the, to the point and, and to the reason that when we set the framework for the seminar, we're telling them performance means getting to where you, not your counselor, your advisor, your parents, the school that's kind of hitting you up for nobody, and not me, nobody but you, where you want to go. That's what, that's, that's what this conversation is about. It's not saying you should get a better GPA, that you should, none of that, because they're so inundated with this competitive performance framework, I'm going to outperform my peer. It's like, it probably looks like getting to a place where you feel awesome and are doing awesome things, you know, and loving life. Like that's probably what it looks like at the height of peak performance. Right. You're like, man, life is really awesome. And I'm, I'm doing the things that I'm here to do. And I'm, I'm loving the connection with other humans and it feels good. So as long as we're constantly showing them that that framework, we want to, we want to tie it into people who are living a version of their lives that they dig. And that these kids admire, but it's going to look a lot different for every one of us. And it doesn't always look like being a rapper or a ball player or somebody at the high end of, you know, a specific industry. It looks like living the life that you want because you created it, because you're the architect and you can take the wheel. Love it. So thinking big, what, what are you trying to achieve
1: from the highest vision of the impact
0: that you're making on the ground, David? So we have have a couple different things. So, you know, for one, this is a long-term goal and a big goal. We ultimately want to be part of a force that gets these standard physiological assessments to be baseline practices in schools. Baseline steps, baseline assessments, so that before someone is diagnosed with a disorder, we actually check if what they're experiencing is not a normal and natural physiological response. Because should they get put into an arena or environment where those tests are knocked on and they're skipped over, and you skip over the physiology and go right to psychology, and then you introduce a pharmacological approach to that situation, you've locked yourself out of the solution to the problem. That mm. person still has a 10-second CO2 tolerance. They are still breathing 30 breaths per minute. They are still seated, slumped over in a way that they can't access airways, and they will feel like they are suffocating for the rest of their life. They'll just be on mitigation. So at (laughs) at the highest level of our goal and our vision, this needs to be baseline, baseline medical practice in schools, regardless of someone's philosophy on things that we're talking about in terms of mindfulness or other, you know, what is almost being viewed as an alternative curriculum. I think that's all great, but this should be a baseline health assessment so that someone does not end up for the rest of their life on a medication that they didn't need, because that's a very, very, very insidious circle and an insidious approach to prescribing medication for a problem that may or may not exist. And we can check, and we can check very simply at least one of those baseline measures, which is, are they hyperventilating? Because we can correlate that to existing data on hyperventilation and panic. Yeah.
1: So that's, 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 that's the
0: bigger vision ultimately of the organization. But then we also have the student outreach and the student engagement and the peer to peer program. So there's one thing and and they coexist. They, they, they are next to each other. One's not above. You can have a CO2 tolerance test in school and give a, young person, no knowledge of their physiology, no agency over it, no connection to resources. You've just done a test, right? Along with that is, this, is spreading the seminar series, which we're doing through a national and, and I suppose at this point global because we have people in London or Australia who've gotten involved. An ambassador program where anyone in their community can apply to be a physiology first ambassador and we have a screening process in place and we work with them through a series of phone calls and webinars to figure out what they're, why they're interested in this and whether it's a good fit. But if it is a good fit, they can then go into their school district, make the connections that they have there with their teams, with their, you know, their schools, uh, their classrooms, their kids' classrooms, and they can take this baseline presentation, which is completely agnostic in nature. We're just looking at the latest research on respiration and stress. And they can present it and we can encourage them through our process our train the trainer process to not forget the critical principles of trust, connection, goals that the students really, really relate to engagement, listening, and try to hopefully scale the seminar well beyond anything that we can do here in Maine. Uh, Maine actually where we're located has the highest rate of youth anxiety in the country. So we have a major problem to solve here but we can also extend that through the ambassador program. And ultimately we would like to produce the research that makes it a lot easier to A, build this into curriculum, get the seminars into schools, and also make those structural changes to the medical diagnosis process that's happening right now, because it's happening pretty in a pretty unstandardized way and I find that scary. Absolutely, well it's also,
1: powered by big pharma not to say I'm going to go into conspiracy or anything like that. But that well, is, is I, lo- I love <laughs> that you said that you, uh,
0: here, here's something that we ask the students a lot. I asked them, I'm like, so, you know, like what is, uh, let's have a like a like fun conversation on like on business and stuff. Like, what is Facebook? And if they tell it, depending on the depth of their answer, what, what they understand the technology to be tells me a lot about what they, what they see in the, in the business world. Right? Well, it doesn't take long to connect the dots to the fact that, yes, there are costly solutions to this problem and there are free ones. There's a business being run around pharmaceuticals and it's incredible and it's huge and it's very, very powerful. And then there are innate physiological tools. And however you feel about the power and scale of the the pharmaceutical industry, common sense would say to me that you would start with the baseline innate free physiological tool and go from there. And that's why we call our work physiology first. Yeah,
1: it's so, so good. And I also love the step where you start with giving the person a little bit of power and autonomy and and really increasing their agency. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you have, let's say Jordan B. Peterson, who's talking about like medication is necessary. Like if you need medication, then take it. If it keeps you alive, it's important, of right, right? So we're, we're, not, we're not discriminating here. And that was actually a realization that I needed to make because I definitely had a bias that was like, oh, medication is bad. No, it's actually oh, important right. and necessary Absolutely. in many instances. But if we can create this awareness of an intervention through breath work, through the power of self, through understanding, let's just say, your breath rate and your mechanics of your breath alone, right. and that all of a sudden makes you realize, holy smokes, I am not in control of this and that's creating this spin-off cycle that's massively empowering to that person and it will impact them for the rest of their lives which also
0: is incredible. It's a lifetime tool and when you when when they can separate uh, here's something we've we've seen and found a lot of um positivity and and promise in when they can separate psychology and physiology even a little bit then they're suddenly not wrong for feeling how they're feeling. They're suddenly mm. not different. They're suddenly not dealing with a disorder. Right, You're, I, I, use the, I use the example a lot at the, at the seminars. I'm like, look, I run a gym and we do a lot of deadlifts, right? So if I have somebody from the gym with me, otherwise I'll demonstrate. So what if we get my, you know, my partner here to demonstrate a deadlift with their back completely rounded over? I mean, it's just as, as round as a horseshoe. And they tell me that they're experiencing back pain what might be the problem? <laughs> oh, their back's in a terrible position. Yes, <laughs> that'd be the problem. Because you identified a base. It's not, it's not a character flaw, right? <laughs> they don't have a... There was a baseline problem mechanically, and it caused an issue, and we identified it. And we took that as the first step. And then we built, if that didn't work, you build your thinking from there. Because there are certainly instances where medication is a critical and life-saving tool from people. And the last thing we ever want to do with this work is make the people who are on a medication that they need feel as if that's somehow not completely within their right and maybe the best choice for them. Mm -hmm. But I feel that we should just be checking to see if that's true before prescribing it, because these medications can become addictive and they're getting prescribed really, really fast at scale. Yeah.
1: And also, if that person is on medication, let's just say they're sitting in the audience and all of a sudden they're going through this process, Right. well, that might be a key for them taking a little bit of personal empowerment and responsibility, seeing the connection that, hey, I do have a choice here. Hey, how I breathe does impact how I feel. And all of a sudden, they start this practice and all of a sudden they might say, you know, what? I'm going to start to reduce the amount of medication that I'm taking on a weekly basis because... I'm starting to feel better. And then all of a sudden, now it's a process and a pathway that in three months, six months, maybe they're off medication for the rest of their lives. It's,
0: it isn't that the goal of many of these medications, but it doesn't become realized because as you pointed out, there has to be a path off, mm-hmm. right? If I have a disorder, we don't have a cure. We just have a pill and nothing's changed physiologically. And we haven't checked whether that disorders arose from something that looked like disordered breathing or really poor sleep or nutritional factors, whatever else it might be. I'm sorry, we got a dog that just ran in here. He's <laughs> going all over the place. <laughs> that's that's uh, if all right. We if we haven't done diligence to check, then that person may be on a medication for the rest of their life because there is an off-ramp. And, and, and I suppose to the point too that if the off-ramp is purely psychological and not also physiological, you may again lock yourself out of the solution to the problem. One thing I I, we say often is, no psychiatrist in good faith would perform an analysis, a psychological analysis, on somebody who was under the influence or intoxicated. Right? You would understand that they were in a state of such deep physiological disruption that you couldn't get an accurate lens into the psychology. Mm -hmm. Well, when someone is chronically exhausted, when someone is hyperventilating. When someone is in a state of deeply disrupted physiology, it's very hard to get a psychological profile on that person. But if we start to do these baseline assessments, maybe we can hopefully raise the game on both ends and get better analysis from both positions. Yeah, absolutely. So
1: let's wrap this up because we've hit a lot, and there's a, so much great information here. And I hope people are able to see that Physiology First is, is coming out with this tangible, real, I don't want to even call it a solution because you're not trying to solve anything. You're really just bringing awareness tools. and bringing tools and having tools and po- strategies. A, a positive conversation around this whole thing that we are all experiencing.
0: Like nobody's absolved of it. 100%. These are states of, states of being, they're states of the nervous system, and we all experience them on a spectrum every single day.
1: Yeah. It's always funny when you talk about someone or talk with somebody about breathwork, they're like, well, I breathe. Right. Like, well, What's so special about that? It's like, well, yes, we all breathe. But as and I'm sure if you've listened to the last hour of this conversation, you now know how breathwork is implicated in all kinds of different things within our systems. But we often oversimplify and take for granted breathwork. And ex- excuse the pun, it's been living Underneath our nose
0: this whole time. 100% and one of our goals is to – it is a scientific presentation because we want to make sure that we're avoiding the vague. I'm not going to tell a student to follow their breath because that would be like having them follow a lost hiker in the woods, right? That's what happens when you follow a disordered pattern. It it doesn't self-correct. So we're showing them uh, what is optimal breathing rate, volume, and mechanics that we've learned from basic anatomy, physiology, biology, and research, and how can you apply this to your life? And why is it important? Because it'll change how your brain operates and how your body feels, and you have the wheel, the remote, the entire show.
1: Hmm. So if someone wanted to, let's just say, reach out to become an ambassador to bring this into their school be mm-hmm. it if they're local to you or they're somewhere around the world yeah uh, who they contact how they contact you and what options are available to
0: them they, they can jump uh, they can follow us on instagram at physiology first we get a lot of interaction there a lot of dms from people who are actually watching the work and the research that we're putting up and they can dm us there they can also go to physiologyfirst.org and you'll find a contact info there you can contact me and I will set up a time to talk with you to get on a video conference and to work to get to see if we're a good fit to possibly mm-hmm. partner in scaling up the, the, the seminar and the work. Mm-hmm.
1: And actually something we didn't talk about is right now you're lobbying and fundraising to do some research. Can you just talk about that project? Yeah, I,
0: I'd love to. So what, what we have as a first step towards building research is we have an eight-week educational, a breath education program that we're launching in two schools this uh, September. Uh, funding f- uh, it, Providing that we can fund this, which was why we're pushing so hard to actually engage people in the fundraising process. Um, we have eight weeks to work with a group of nine students at North Yarmouth Academy here in Maine and teach them a lot of these principles and, in a, as part of a core curriculum in a way that really hasn't been done before. And to do the CO2 tolerance testing and to learn from the process of giving them the tools to build a daily breathing practice, watching how that changes their CO2 levels over the course of eight weeks as they engage with it, and watching how that changes their own self-report back on a lot of the questions that we're asking throughout the breath education program as they talk about whether the tools help them in a tangible way to overcome anxiety. We're running the same breath education program at a public school in Boston, so we're running them in tandem. And it will be like unlike anything that I've seen in the breath education space. These are two immersive programs, but we're going to take what we learn from them and work to ultimately, we're looking for um, an internal review board to partner with as we work to build an actual study on CO2 tolerance and student anxiety uh, later in the year. Man, that's exciting. It's been exciting. And the the way that we're trying to get people involved is what we realized is if we could get 50 people to put a hundred dollar donation in, we could fund the eight-week program both at NYA and at the Boston Public School System, and what we learn from these eight weeks—beyond uh, first—we have the tools that we can actually provide from the students. But what we learn is going to help shape, I think, the research that hopefully changes how anxiety is addressed in school.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, powerful. Well, David, I appreciate you, man. You're doing man. Some I appreciate you very similar this work.
0: conversation. We've uh... I can't thank you enough, Martin, for all that you do. <laughs> for getting for reaching out and just for being such an incredible voice for for youth education and empowerment man it's an inspiration to talk to you and do this with you
1: well after speaking with you it feels like i've done nothing my friend but we're we're at the beginning this is we're at the beginning
0: we're at the beginning of a really 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 inspiring ride and i can't wait to see where it all goes
1: yeah agreed well once again thank you so much for carving out the time and uh, i hope uh, people, if they're inspired to reach out or, or donate that, that hundred dollars, which really is, um, you know, not a humongous fundraising effort, but you guys are doing a ton on your side, but, uh, a hundred dollars from 50 people can hopefully happen quick. If uh, That's, that is our
0: hope. And if, if we can hit that goal, we can get going at NYA in Boston because the school year is starting and we're, we're ready to rock. Amazing, and you know the goal of this conversation
1: was to look at it from let's say a youth and a school angle of how to bring breath and awareness of breath into the schools. So there's a lot of space here for, for teachers, for mm-hmm. coaches, for administration. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity because that's where kids are, right? They're spending their that's time where they are. there. You know,
0: it, I should add that a lot of our seminars are actually for faculty and administration. You know, we pose the seminar to the school. And some schools say look would you work with our faculty and our administrators absolutely then that's Mm. the first step to getting it into the classroom some say look we want you to come in and condense the whole thing to 20 minutes (laughs) which is something we'll do we'll we'll get the basic principle right we'll do our best and sometimes they say hey can you present to an auditorium of 100 students i'm just so inspired to think that with the people who are getting involved around the country and beyond that the scale of this can really be a paradigm shift in how we talk about this conversation. So that, that's yeah. leaving me feeling very, very inspired right now.
1: Well, I'm super optimistic and also inspired. So David, thank you for your time. Martin, thank and- you so
0: much for the opportunity, my friend.
1: Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you and the time that you put into this. I'll always do my best to bring you as much value as possible through these conversations. And in return, I'd love it if you were to give this podcast five stars on iTunes or share it with any friend, parent, coach, teammate, someone that you love, someone that you think would gain value from listening to this conversation. The goal really is to empower the individual. Yes, this is about performance, but can we all become better human beings before we enter whatever that peak performance is? So thank you once again for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.